Escape from Plan A. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. I'm your host, Oxford Kondo. And uh, today, I'm, ho- I'm joined by a very special guest, journalist E. Tammy Kim. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, and we're so happy to have you. Uh, we're so happy to have you. you you've written for a lot of uh, publications. So um, please just introduce yourself. Tell us about uh, what you do. Sure. So I am a freelance magazine writer and a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times. And I mostly work on longer stories. I've been writing a lot about the Koreas over the past couple of years because of all the news happening, um, which is how you and I got in touch. Um, and I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, and I, I just want to give a special thanks to TK, who's been on, uh, or also known as The Korean. He has he has a website, thekorean.blogspot.com. Uh, we potted with him uh, uh, several episodes uh, back about the immigrant time warp. And I actually asked him, because I, I was really curious about this topic we're going to talk about today, which is about uh, feminism and, and the Me Too movement in Korea. And I just wanted someone, you know, very good to talk to, and he immediately came up with you. So, uh, TK, if you're listening, thanks to you. Thank to you. Um, okay, before we get started, I just want to uh, say a few things just about our podcast. If you like us, please subscribe to us. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, Spotify, and Google Play. And if you have any comments or uh, ideas, you want to submit anything to us, uh, our email is editor.plantamag at gmail.com. We'll put all this information in the episode description. Okay, so as I said, the uh, topic we want to talk about today uh, is this uh, Me Too movement and feminism in Korea. And and Tammy has recently written an article in the New York Review of Books that came out, I think, last week, was it? Mm-hmm, yep. Yeah, it's, it's a very informative article that tells you a lot about it, this very broad movement. Um, it comes out in print on March in the March 7th, 2019 issue. So if you like print editions, uh, this is where it will appear. So uh, Tammy, yeah, as I said, this is a topic I think uh, interests a lot of people and it's it's kind of hard to get. Uh, I, I feel like this only pops up sometimes in the in the American media when something like kind of crazy happens or or sometimes I suspect when like Me Too gets a little too hot in America, they're like, okay, we need to <laughs> release the steam a bit. And then they'll be like, oh, let's look at the Middle East or or Asia or like South America. So it's so good to just talk to someone who who knows this issues and is just like direct has gone there without without any kind of filter. So uh, why don't you just uh, maybe describe what your article is about and then we could start from um, just like going through all the issues because this is such a big topic. It's, it's going to be uh, hard to cover in just one episode, but we will give it a shot. Yeah, it really is. And I appreciate your bringing me to into the conversation in the Asian context. Um, and I think we're also going to talk about how it sort of refracts back in the U.S. There's a lot of transnational connections for feminist movement work around the world, obviously. And I do think there, hopefully with the expansion of our thinking around Me Too, there'll be more interest in what's happening in other places. So last year, I spent quite a few weeks in Korea reporting on different topics from 
the Trump Kim stuff all the way to Me Too and some other cultural matters that are more confined to South Koreans' domestic situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that emerges in South Korea is that Me Too, of course, is a hashtag that's about a decade old, but was applied really and started get, getting going when Harvey Weinstein, the controversy around Harvey Weinstein erupted. Um, but in Korea, it's actually been going for a while before that. So what we are calling Me Too, you know, as this kind of tag or international umbrella has really specific and different sorts of character in different places. And so in Korea, we can trace back the present feminist uprising several years actually ago to um, an eruption of spy cam pornography, which we can talk a little bit more about, and also a really high profile murder that occurred in Seoul in 2016. And all of that kind of blended together with the impeachment of Park geun the former president who was extremely corrupt. Um, there's just been a lot of different sorts of social movement and kind of public space occupations in Korea over the past few years. And so we can see like the feminist uprising as part of that. Um, but my piece, as it appears in the New York Review of Books, also looks at this wildly successful novel called Kim Ji Young, born in 1982. Mm-hmm. And it's a novel that is a feminist novel that's been read or purchased, I should say, by one fiftieth of the population of Korea, which is just an insane number for any book to sell, yeah. but especially a novel. Um, mm-hmm. And this novel, while not expressly about sort of sexual violence, um, has become a kind of touchstone in Korea's Me Too and feminist movement. So that's kind of what I'm have been reporting on and trying to tie all together. There's again the sort of social movement part, but also this kind of intellectual um, and more critical like feminist thinking that's emerging in Korea right now. Yes. In your article, you said the book is undergoing English translation, right? It's not available yet? It is. Yeah. Oh, oh it, it is. It is un- like it's not available right now. It's not available okay. yet. Yeah. Right. It's being translated into 18 languages. The Japanese version came out already and is um, by re- what reports I've read a bestseller there. Um, I don't, I'm curious how it'll read in English because some of this stuff is very sort of culturally specific, but you know, of course that's the art of a translator. Um, so the snippets of the book that appear in my review are translations that I did and are probably quite inferior to what will eventually come out in the official translation. Yeah. I mean, just as an aside, I, I know how uh, tough translations can be. I'm, I'm currently reading uh, War and Peace, uh, and there are entire parts where I guess it was originally written in French. Like, I mean, obviously the, the mm. book was written in Russian, but it was written in French. And then I guess these translators decided to leave it in French but then uh, give the English translation in the footnotes. It's, it's kind of crazy. Uh-huh, yeah. So like translation's a, a messy business. I hope they can capture uh, what, what made it special in the original language, because I, I think a lot of you know, English speakers, especially like Asian Americans, um, it, it would be great for them to be able to, to get why this book uh, has resonated yeah. so much with people. I think you're right. Yeah, okay, let's start with that, the Gangnam murder, because uh, it plays a big part in your article, and it is seen, I think, as the catalyst for this like modern protests and a lot of these things. So just please tell us like uh, everything about it, because I think a lot of listeners uh, don't really know what that is about. Sure. So Gangnam, this very busy and sort of expensive neighborhood in Seoul that people probably know from the Psy song, um, (laughs) was the site of a notorious murder in the spring of 2016. And if you're familiar at all with the sort of architectural construction in Korea, there is a model of 
this sort of, I guess, multi-story is a very vertical city, um, you know, kind of public private space where the restrooms are kind of on the landing of each floor in the restroom of um, this particular building that housed a norebang karaoke parlor. There was a man who was waiting in a stall until a woman came in. So these are, you know, sort of public, publicly open, but private restrooms that are, um, you know, not gendered. And when a woman came in, he, he killed her. Mm-hmm. And he later told the police that, you know, he was very frustrated and women had always been mean to him, that sort of thing, this kind of incel culture. Um, but, you know, then he also pled insanity. So it's a complicated case criminally. But what it came to represent is a culture in which, um, you know, the murder and harassment, violence against women, the rates are very high. We can see that from the Korean statistics. Um but it plugged into a lot of women's fears and their feelings of vulnerability on the streets. And so right after the murder, around the subway entrance closest to where this occurred, there was a huge public protest and women started posting notes about their own experiences, like, you know, saying to the victim, I understand I'm the same age as you. Um, You're standing for all of us. You know, we'll never let this sort of thing happen again. And it became this kind of, um, as you said, a catalyst for feminist thinking and movement work. Um, So that was one of the the sort of high points of um, the contemporary Korean Me Too movement, if you want to describe it that way, Um, and tied in also to other forms of sexual violence that are mediated online that had also been brewing. Um, and one of those things I think uh, that I've been seeing more in like the last few months has to do with uh, I think like spy cam and revenge porn. So can you talk more about that and how it relates to all this? Sure. And so this goes back about a decade or more, but pornography is illegal in South Korea and essentially always has been. Of course, it exists in every culture, uh, but the illegality of it um, has also produced a situation in which Pornography is produced not only unlawfully, but um, secretly. And so there's a genre of pornography that has emerged in South Korea that is called spy cam porn and is sort of described as kind of satisfying like a naturalistic fetish. But those are all euphemistic terms for saying that this is like extremely violative of people's rights. Essentially, there has been for well over a decade now in a lot of public spaces where women are taking off their clothes, like bathrooms, changing rooms, locker rooms, um, spy cameras, very tiny spy cameras that are capturing this footage and then are being kind of edited and collaged and uploaded onto various websites or exchanged among men through their smartphones um, without obviously the women's consent. Um, And sometimes the women's faces are visible. And so this is also kind of like ambient fear, like, oh, am I part of this? Am I, is my body being um, unbeknownst to me utilized to satisfy men in this way? So that kind of fear, you know, there's been a lot of crackdowns by the South Korean police against spy cam porn and the government trying to take down the most notorious websites in this domain. But of course, it's still circulating. Was there uh, like a big catalytic event similar to like like the Gangnam murder in which maybe there was uh, like a certain website that was found out or there was a certain like maybe uh, like stores or like whatever that, that people found out about? Or was this something that had been just like kind of simmering for a while until it just reached uh, like a crescendo point? Well, in 2000, 
Yeah, about 2007, actually, there was, in response to one big crackdown, um, a regulation passed in South Korea where smartphones always have to make a sound when you are taking a photo. So that was in response to like peeping Tom photography. So this is kind of an old problem. Uh, but in 2015, so again, this is, you know, well before the Weinstein Me Too got started, um, there was a crackdown on Soranet, which was a very notorious platform for uh, spy cam pornography and revenge pornography. And that was the second time that Sordonet was taken down, you know, which is another way of saying that there will always be different websites to fill this space. Um, but that I think the extent to which, you know, this sort of pornography was circulating on that website became much more widely known in 2015 and caused a lot of women to start thinking about, you know, what is really going on in this society. Yeah. Um, do you know what kind of solutions are being proposed? Because I read this, uh, the, you know, same kind of stuff that happens in America and in the hard, like, like, it seems like the really hard part is how to take these down once they're out there, because, um, you know, everyone can agree this is wrong. But once those files are out there, it, it would, it, it seems so difficult to actually eradicate all of them. Um, are there are there any, um, like promising solutions that, that have been proposed? It really is a difficult question. I mean, in the US, we had this whole thing around the criminalization of Backpage, you know, there's been all these different, um, I guess, like, initiatives to criminally combat um, pornography and you know, trafficking of women, etc. Um, and sometimes it just pushes it to other parts of um, society, or sometimes it worsens it by criminalizing women instead of men, you know, so they're really difficult policy questions. I mean, I think some feminists believe that in Korea, it would help, first of all, first of all, to legalize or at least decriminalize the production of pornography and to do the same for sex work, to have a society in which more sexual conversations can take place and where mm -hmm. sexuality isn't considered so deviant. You know, I think the cultural change is a huge piece of this. And I, and that's, I think, why the Me Too movement is so important there. I mean, certainly there's some experimentation right now with, um, you know, women centered policing of spy cam pornography. And that definitely has to also be part of it to apprehend the men who are engaged in the production of this. Mm -hmm. But I, but it's an incredibly complicated thing to which I don't have an adequate answer, except to say that I do think the cultural conversation is at a point right now where it's it's not doing any good. So we need to continue the, the sort of activism and critical commentary that's, that's started to happen. Mm -hmm. And another thing you write about in the article is, are all these scandals in uh, particularly the literary industry. Um, mm -hmm. I think, well, like, you know, Me Too in America really did start in Hollywood, then it went into like journalism yeah. and things like that. Uh, and in uh, Korea, it's like similarly, uh, it's literature, I, I, undoubtedly entertainment, um, you know, like, I'm sure, uh, you know, stuff like this happens all over the world. It's not unique to any place. Um, and uh, so, so what what's been going on, especially in like the poetry part of of the literature uh, sector? Yeah. So one of the earliest instantiations of Me Too, kind of as a hashtag or you know a way of thinking, was um, a hashtag that I guess roughly translated would be you know literary world sexual abuse, and it started with a poet and um, a publishing house employee who spoke out about the abuse that she suffered under an old poetry teacher and kind of spread from there. And it would make sense that it's the cultural sector in which a lot of the early feminist stuff comes out because these are people who are really good at expressing themselves and are using language all the time, right? So that's why also we've seen it here and um, in other places kind of originating around, you know, movies and film and um, 
you know, literature. Uh, but I think an added piece in Korea is that literature is a really like whole, almost wholly kind of sacred space. It's extremely well respected. You know, Korea obviously has this like incredible long tradition of poetry and prose. And so, you know, for it to erupt around figures like Ko Eun, who's this incredible you know, incredibly respect, who was an incredibly respected poet for many decades, um, is a huge deal. So, you know, in Kohn's case, there was a woman poet named Young Mi who published a poem that was an accusation against him, um, and was quickly identified as such. And after that, all these women came out about, you know, everything from groping to forced sexual contact against him, you know, in it again, over a period spanning decades, um, and then he tried to, he actually sued Young Mi for defamation and recently lost. Um, so there, there were these really high profile figures who have kind of fallen. Like Cohen's poetry was removed from a bunch of textbooks. A foundation bearing his name was shut down. So there are real life and economic consequences from this stuff. And, um, you know, and then it quickly spread into politics, which in, in which, you know, a number of very high po- profile politicians were also taken down. Yes. Oh, we should definitely talk about politics. I, I do want to ask one question. So like lately, like, like the last like maybe five years, there have been some very high profile Korean uh, women authors who have been translated into English, like like Han Gang. And I, I know there are like others. I don't quite remember their names. Have th- Has that given them a platform to talk more about this? Is, is that related to to all these issues in any way? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I I guess I would say yes. I think the the more noteworthy translations in recent years have been of Korean women authors, and I think that's a wonderful thing. I don't I I don't think any of them are are particularly sort of straightforwardly writing about Me Too, except um, I do mention at the end of my piece an author named Hwang Jung-un. A couple of her books have been translated into English. She recently wrote uh, a very sort of on-point Me Too essay that was inspired by her reading of Roxane Gay, in which she talks about a rape that she suffered as a child. Um, And so that was you know, that's probably kind of the most, uh, alongside Young Mi's poem, a very sort of high profile, I guess, confession or testimony about her abuse. Um, but, you know, I think that is, it's a, it's an interesting point you raise, which is just, which I think goes more to something else, which is that in South Korea right now, like if you go to any of the major bookstores, there are huge displays of feminist literature. And I think the novel's would include works by people like Hanbang and, you know, Pezua. And even if they're not expressly writing Me Too books, their work is being sort of lifted up and re-recognized in this particular political moment. Yeah, you, you mentioned some popular American authors like uh, Roxane Gay, uh, Rebecca Solnit, right? And then mm-hmm. uh, are there any other names that are that are high up on that list? The one I heard repeatedly from folks is Susan Faludi, who was much more popular in the 1990s with a book called Backlash, which was an important sort of feminist book here. Um, so I was quite surprised that people were reading that, um, you know, in the kind of mode of 1970s second wave activism in the U.S., there's been um, a growing number of feminist book clubs and reading groups, sort of consciousness raising meetings that mm-hmm. have cropped up in Korea. So it's my understanding that people are reading things like backlash there. I thought that was, you know, it's a really interesting way of thinking about the circulation of ideas over time. Yeah. And, and then uh, you mentioned politics and uh, like happening amidst a lot of this is 
the uh, impeachment and then, uh, I guess, a resignation of President Park Geun-hye. Um, just for people who don't know a lot of Korean history, which, you know, kind of unfortunately includes me, <laughs> um, let, how, can you describe, uh, like, who Park Geun-hye is, why, like, why she was like an important person in the first place, you know, like her father and like what he was all about back in when he was president. Um, just give us a little history lesson if, if you could. Sure. So the pres- the Korean president who was impeached in 2017 was named Park geun and she was the first Korean president who was a woman. Um, people who don't know who she is, you know, sort of looking from the outside might have thought, oh, what a progressive development. However, she was an extremely right-wing and corrupt politician whose father was a pivotal military dictator in the 1960s and 1970s. He held power for almost 20 years in South Korea. And he's a really polarizing figure still. Um, You know, some Korean commentators would go so far as to say that he is, you know, how you sort of understand Park Jong-hee is really says everything about like your understanding or take on Korean politics. Like he's that important. He was um, a man who was educated in Japanese military academies and was a very sort of militaristic leader with a very uh, focused notion of modernization, which would be very rapid industrial development. Um, you know, human rights be damned. So he pursued a really, really aggressive, you know, quote unquote, industrialization, modernization campaign um, that led to the persecution and deaths of many, many people, but also did bring Korea, you know, quote unquote, into the 20th century sort of thing after the war. So when his daughter, who was, um, you know, orphaned rather early on because he and his wife were both killed, um, she became president uh, in 2011 was the election, and um, it soon became evident starting in 2016, although it was kind of known before in 2014 when there was this horrible ferry accident that killed hundreds of high schools and junior high students that something terrible and corrupt was going on in her administration. 2016, it was revealed that she had a friend who was essentially kind of a ghost president. She was delegating all sorts of decisions to this woman. And um, there were just there was just a lot of shady transactions happening, you know, in the Blue House. And so people started coming out onto the streets um, in a show of force that was quite unprecedented. An estimated one third of the Korean population participated in the candlelight movement protests. Um, and she was eventually ousted. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's it's an interesting and unfortunate thing when you have so few women in power that, you know, women have to, you know, single women have to start standing for an entire half of the species of yeah. humanity. Um, but that is sort of what we saw so that in, in one sense you could kind of say, oh, we're, we're some of these kind of misogynists, there's these protests misogynistic where the attacks against her motivated by her gender Perhaps some of that is true. I mean, in the sense that the viciousness of the attacks were probably, you know, and the language employed were probably gendered. But this was fundamentally a protest about good governance and about, you know, having a real democracy. So mm-hmm. I think left leaning and liberal feminists who were opposing her um, and we should say that the protests against her really actually did start on a women's campus. So this was in a sense, like a feminist campaign to reclaim democracy. Um, we're carving out their own space in the candlelight movement protest and saying, 
you know, this isn't about her being a woman. This is about her being a corrupt politician. We need to take her down. But don't you don't need to use violent misogynistic language to do so. And also in the actual physical space of the protests in the town square, we're going to carve out women only spaces so that there isn't the kind of harassment that women are subjected to in the spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so some feminists like in my reporting on Me Too told me that the candlelight movement protests were really important for them as feminists to be able to learn what social protests on mass could look like. And then they were able to kind of take that and employ it in feminist organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because uh, I think some people, yeah, they try to use the like the failed uh, Park Geun-hye presidency to say, well, you know, see the, these women, they're going to be easily controlled by, you know, other forces. This is why you can't have them as president. So yeah, it, it must have been, qu- yeah, it must have been difficult if you were, uh, you know, like pro uh, you know, w- women leaders, but then you're like, um, your first president is, you know, obviously corrupt, yet how do you also uh, protest against that while also, um, you know, sh- shielding her from the more misogynistic attacks, yet also not wanting to seem like an apology? Yeah, it, it must have been very difficult. I mean, you, yeah, it's, it's it's always hard when, when you have like pioneers who, who kind of fail, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's an unfair burden that is, just a result of patriarchy around the world that this sort of thing happens because when a man fucks up, nobody is ever going to a group of men and saying, Hey, doesn't this, you know, impugn your entire gender, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Right. So I think yeah, that's something that minority, women are constantly then, dealing yeah. with in every field. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just more put more sharply during the candlelight movement. But I think the feminists dealt with it quite well. Yes. And then, um, well, we, we have a new president, uh, Moon Jae, in which, I think, again, a lot of Americans don't know much about. Uh, I, I think people just know of him as, you know, that guy who shook Kim Jong-un's hand. Um, I think I think generally in America, he's liked just because he seems like a you know decent guy as opposed to Trump and so many other world leaders. Um, so what, what's he, you know, what, what's your opinion on him? What, what has he done to make any changes uh, and so forth? Sure. So Moon Jae-in is... I think has the potential to be one of the best Korean presidents. He is um, a liberal, not quite a leftist, um, obviously representing reform in this post Park Geun-hye era. He was defeated by Park Geun-hye in the previous election. Um, he's a longtime politician, but before that was a human rights and labor lawyer who had been mentored by and worked closely with the former president, No Mu-hyun. Um, whose political legacy Moon Jae-in is kind of trying to interpret and rework in some ways. And um, because of the particular weird chemistry that exists right now with Trump and Kim Jong-un, Moon has been... (laughs) Weird chemistry is right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like I've been writing about this over the last year, and it's very difficult to kind of summarize what's going on. But, you know, they're weird world historical moments where you just kind of have to go with the flow. And I think that's kind of where Moon Jae-in finds himself because in the first year of his presidency, it was the middle of the online war between Kim Jong-un and Trump, where they were constantly exchanging threats of mutual destruction and Kim Jong-un was testing missiles. And it was a very, very tense time where people weren't sure exactly what was going to happen. And so he was kind of put in a position where peace with North Korea, while always a South Korean priority or, you know, an obsession or distraction, you know, depending on your politics, needed to sort of be the number one priority. So 
you know, he has met now with Kim Jong-un three times, which is a historic number, you know, in one year and has really been pushing Trump to pursue a politics of peace on the Korean Peninsula. And, you know, now we have Kim and Trump about to meet a second time uh, later this month in Vietnam. This is a very big deal. And, um, you know, whatever your definition of reunification, I think Moon is trying to kind of explore many things along the spectrum, like what would it look like to have a rail line connecting the two Koreas again, you know, in a, in a robust way? What would it look like for there to be you know, robust South Korean development and capitalism in North Korea, et cetera, et cetera. So I think he's someone who's very well-intentioned, who's trying to do a lot of good and whose plate is very full. Um, he's been criticized by former allies of his, like in the labor movement for not doing enough on domestic politics. I think feminists and LGBT activists feel the same way. I mean, Moon infamously said that he doesn't like homosexuality a couple of years ago. So, you know, he's certainly less than, you know, a leftist by Western standards. You know, at the same time, he is trying to kind of push what he can. Um, there was one thing like on the Me Too front, he um, put in charge of the National Human Rights Commission, which is kind of analogous to the equal, uh, the EOC here or, you know, a local human, a local or state human rights body, um, a very prominent women's rights activist in charge of that. So, you know, and he's kind of, he's promised to also put 30% women in his cabinet. He's fallen short of that, but he has sort of tried to do some of the stuff that women have demanded over the years, probably not as successfully as he would have liked. I see. I, I think there is a big generational divide, uh, right, in, in like Korean politics. Uh, I mean, we, we see it in America too. If you ever go to a, a lot of online spa spaces, especially like uh, more kind of leftist spaces are constant, you know, just clowning on boomers and stuff. Uh, but in Korea, <laughs> there's like a similar thing happening because I know that a lot of Pakana supporters were older people who had very fond memories of, of uh, President Park Jong-hee because of what he did for like Korea's economy. And I think the fact that he was assassinated maybe, uh, uh, you know, made him a, a kind of a martyr in their eyes. Um, versus the the young people who you know unemployment is is you know relatively high uh and even to g get a job is difficult because of you know how difficult it is to do well in the education system and i cuz when I, I was in korea at the time um like may 2017 and that was when you know the election was mm -hmm. taking place and that was fascinating because that was the first time i ever saw a korean election like in on the ground yeah um mm -hmm. and it did seem like you know you, you had like the older people who all wanted uh someone like you know hong Jun-pyo, who was i think the same party as Park Geun-hye, right the kind of right-wing party yeah and then the, mm -hmm. the, all the younger people either like moon jae-in I, I think there was another woman who was like uh, further left that some of my friends were mentioning i forget her name uh, maybe you can say it if, if you remember it but is is it true is there like a big generational divide in politics yeah although I, you know i'm not always sure if that's like just kind of our shorthand or you know to what extent that's really the case i mean obviously there are a lot of middle-aged and older people who were the fighters in the democracy movement and who stood by moon Jae-in while he was on the streets you know and and people of his ilk so you know certainly those people a lot of those people are still on the left and are trying to, you know, achieve the democracy that they had envisioned when they were younger. Um, but it is true that, especially through, I think, 
you know, there's been a lot of misinformation campaigns and things online that have catered to older people. And then, yes, some of it is this kind of nostalgia over the post-war period that older people can be kind of swayed into sympathy for figures like Pakune. Um But yeah, but I think there might be a tendency also for us to kind of simplify or reduce that distinction. Um, you know, there's also a lot of young people who are quite right wing. Mm -hmm. um, and are motivated by capitalism and, you know, this kind of fantasy of like what, you know, whatever, like super tech, super developed Korea um, should and must be who, you know, have right wing sympathies as well. So it's not super clear cut. But yeah, I think in the main, that isn't an unfair description. And I think that especially stacks when we're talking about North Korean relations, which to some extent kind of mirror the development or you know capitalist kind of progress narrative mm -hmm. um so what exactly defines left and right in korea because my impression is that it's mainly north korea is that true uh perhaps you can elaborate more on that yeah i think that's definitely part of it but i think it's other things as well like you know the de the development versus human rights and human dignity dialectic is still very much at play you know as it is around the world when you're talking about you know what should be the priority of an administration um and so that you know i think what you were mentioning around youth unemployment and the jobs crisis like that's definitely kind of that anxiety is very much like in the air and so that could also potentially motivate people um, you know, to some extent, kind of women's rights, minority rights, immigrant worker rights, like that maps onto it as well. Although in the main, you know, South Korea's um, politics and viewpoints are like very underdeveloped on those points. And so, yeah. um, you know, perhaps that's not like something that people are thinking a lot about, but th I think that that is also relevant to that yeah. left-right distinction. Yeah. Well, what I find interesting is I think the, the left is much more skeptical of the U.S. than the right. Is that correct? Um, yes, I think so. And I, you know, I mean, you're right. I mean, when you, when we talk about North Korea, we're also talking about relations with the U.S., right? Like, do you want the U.S.? to continue having tens of thousands of troops on, in South mm -hmm. Korea? To what extent do you want the U.S. subsidizing the South Korean army? That sort of thing is very much tied up into that. Yes. And um, the extent to which, you know, you should be best buddies with the U.S. But right now it's very complicated because, you know, you do have the kind of let's bring back Park Geun-hye type people who are marching with Korean, U.S. and Israeli flags like, you know, this is like, yeah, I've heard about that, which I found democracy, yeah. right? <laughs> like, that's the kind of um, iconic, you know, image of those sorts of people. So obviously, they're very pro US, like, never leave us, we want all the troops we can have, we want to have divided Korea forever. But on the left right now, people are also feeling kind of warmly towards Trump, because they feel that, you know, Trump has been good for inter-Korean peace. So, you know, we're, <laughs> right now it's this sort of weird blurred line because of the, again, the weird love triangle between Kim, Moon and Trump. Mm -hmm. But is it a kind of like useful idiot kind of love or, or is like we l like him for that one thing and we hate him for the rest? Or is it like, hmm, uh, maybe he isn't so bad after all as a whole because of what he's been uh, maybe uh, like inadvertently do uh, in terms of Korean peace? I mean, my line on this has been that when you are a small country stacked up against an international hegemon, you look, you need to look out for your interests. And right now, Trump 
to the extent that he's been brokering some of these conversations with North Korea and reducing the level of tension, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he had created some of that tension. Um, <laughs> you know, I think like South Koreans are like, this is working for us right now. And that's important. Mm-hmm. And therefore we approve of that, you know, and they're not necessarily thinking about like, okay, but what is Trump? Trump is saying all this crazy stuff about the wall and what is his, you know, race and immigration policy in the U S you know, I think they're much more aware of that than we are aware of things that are happening domestically in other countries. You know, Americans are obviously oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. sort of provincial. Um, so it's not that they're saying Trump is an angel in all regards, but the thing that's most apparent to them is his effect on the Koreas. Yeah. And, and the reason I brought up that, uh, you know, the, the, le- the left's uh, skepticism of the U.S., which I've the reason I said I find that interesting is uh, yet on the more like social issues, they are more in line with probably like uh, traditional liberal American values of, you know, like gender equality and all that. So I find it I'm very right. excited to see how they can reconcile that, because I think sometimes in the past that these uh, like liberal values have had some kind of imperialist bent to it. Yet if these if these people can find a way to stave off that imperialist aspect yet. Um, you know, take what's good from it. I, I think I think that's promising, and I, I want to see how they can pull it off because I'm not sure if that. I, I don't know if like too many examples of w- when that's happened. So that I think that's very well. Exciting. I mean, that's you know, I mean, every president is gonna have some things that are absolutely heinous about his or her policies, and you know, in I mean, that's something actually the American left is struggling with right now because obviously the American left dislikes Trump as a person and knows that he's responsible for all sorts of atrocities here. At the same time, he is sort of the least interventionist president we've had in recent years. And so and that, you know, from the standpoint of a left foreign policy is a good thing. Like, he has been skeptical about Afghanistan and Iraq, for whatever reasons, he hasn't started any new new wars, you know, he was critical about um, you know, interven- further interventions in Syria. And so depending on your position on the left, you might think all of that is a quite good thing if you think that America is an imperialist country with an imperialist history and custom. You might applaud some of Trump's anti-interventionist mm-hmm. moves, but at the same time hate everything else. Yeah. So it's not just a, a kind of Korean thing, but it's a thing that I think the left is struggling with here. Um, going back to more, I think, of the the... The feminist movement. Uh, you also write about cosmetic surgery, which I think is just like a, a just like a persistent issue that that um, is in like especially at Korean society. Um, so, what what are some of the what what are some of the issues surrounding that? Because you write about it in your article. I write about it very briefly, just because it's something that appears in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, Kim Ji Young born in nineteen eighty two, because it's something that's kind of in the air in terms of the expectations of women to look and be a certain way. So to be extremely femmy and to um, be thin and beautiful, you know, this sort of thing. And so, yes, um, obviously South Korea has this reputation for having very advanced and very widespread plastic surgery. Um, And, you know, the character in the book is subjected to all sorts of comments around, oh, wouldn't you be more beautiful if you did this operation or whatnot? And, you know, I think I remember I was once teaching at a Hagwon cram school in Korea. And one of my coworkers said that repeatedly for Christmas and New Year's gifts, she would be offered cosmetic surgery by the children's parents. Oh, man. Which is just like insane, you know, but I, you know, I also think that sometimes in Western media, we kind of like 
blow up the cosmetics thing as like one of the kind of go-to sort of cliche stories about South Korea. So I'm like a little bit loath to kind of indulge in that. And I don't, I haven't reported on extensively at all because of that also, but, you know, I think it is something that just overlaps with uh, this notion of what is it to be a Korean woman and in what sorts of bodies are you deemed acceptable to the masses or, you know, sort of upwardly mobile. Yeah. I mean, it, Um, it is unavoidable when you go to Korea. Like whenever I take the subway there, it's like, you see it everywhere, just like just casually as, you know, if you go in, into a, a, a New York subway and you see a Casper ads, it, <laughs> for it's sure, really yeah. that common. And then you, you just, you just uh, you know, look at the, the building signs, like, you know, Song Yong Susu or, you know, something like that. Um, yeah, you, you, it's true. There was something that I think happened on, on Instagram a few weeks ago. Um, I, I'm not sure if it was like happened in Korea or was, was actually Asian American. Perhaps you can clarify that, but it was like, like Asian women just like smashing their their makeups, uh, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What what was that about? Yeah, there've been some. I, I've seen some of the YouTube videos to that effect too, where South Korean women who are newly identifying as feminists and are joining this women's rights uprising um, are rebelling against those beauty standards and are kind of you know performing the destruction of those standards by, you know, smashing their compacts and eyeshadow and stuff and saying, Hey, I'm not going to do this anymore. So it's more, it's like a body positivity performance, I feel, um, in the same way that, you know, women who are like heavier set or identify as fat and want to make that a positive and okay, acceptable thing in South Korea are putting photos of themselves out there and talking more about, um, their bodies. I also met a young feminist in Seoul who talked about, it's kind of new trend of fitness meetings, fitness meetups and clubs where women will swim together and work out together um, as if to say, you know, we don't have to have these totally stick skinny bodies to feel good about ourselves. We want to be strong. We want to have muscles. We want to have our bodies be whatever shape we want them to be. Mm-hmm. So I think we can see all of these as kind of a group of kind of protest activities and performances against these unreasonable standards. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this on on our call, but a common thing I see among Asian Americans, not Asian Asians, is this kind of attempt to, I guess, reclaim uh, plastic surgery uh, as as like body empowerment, uh, which I find interesting because it seems like um, the women in Korea are more prone to just reject it as as a feminist statement as opposed to try to own it. Um, do do you see any any uh, gulf in that between like people in Asia and then people like Asian Americans or Asians abroad? I don't really know much about that. I I guess my theory would be that you know in in different places feminism is being articulated in different ways, and so perhaps here it's more just about choice, and you can be whatever kind of woman you want to be, and it's nobody's damn business. Um, and to some. But, but that that same rhetoric as applied in South Korea would be, therefore, I am not going to do surgery as opposed to if I do surgery, leave me alone, I can do whatever the hell I want. Um, but I don't know for sure. And I, I don't know how widespread that sort of conversation is. Um, uh, going, going back to politics, um, how do you have any opinions on the whole military service issue? Um, because I've, I've talked to, uh, you know, young Korean uh, female friends I have and and, you know, they do think that it, it's a big problem in that it it basically kind of gives men an excuse to lord over women. Like, you know, we sacrifice, you know, two plus years yeah. of our lives. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, I'm, I'm a big soccer fan and I always hate how it threatens to ruin the careers of my favorite players. I mean, Sonungmi just barely escaped it uh, this year. And it just, um, but, you know, a lot of people will say, hey, you know, the war's still not over. Uh, you know, North is still kind of crazy. Um, you know, don't get complacent and just think that we don't need it anymore. Uh, but uh, in, in specifically in terms of uh, like gender relations, like, do you have an opinion on, on, on how it affects it? It's definitely something that comes up a lot. And actually, there is an interesting part of the novel in which, and I think this is quite a common experience where the character Kim Jong is applying for jobs and um, she sees that she and other women are repeatedly told, well, we gave it to a man because he's the one who served the country. What have you done sort of thing? Uh -huh. And so, um, you know, and I, again, I think this is why like North Korea and the continuing war on the peninsula is like such a thing that inflects all parts of life because yeah. this issue of mandatory military services, well, why is that really necessary? And to what extent does a nation need to be militarized to be safe is the question that is really ineradicable from all sorts of other questions. Um, you know, right now there's been a constitutional court consideration of mandatory military service because there's a lot of conscientious objectors who, who have not wanted to participate mostly for religious reasons. And it's been ruled and the mundane administration now has to devise a civil alternative to service um, so that, you know, somebody who is say a Jehovah's Witness or Seventh-day Adventist could say, I'm not going to military service, but for those two years, I will be working in, you know, as a cleric, clerical worker in whatever civil service job. Um, but, but anyway, that, that just goes to this point that there's a larger reconsideration of that right now. Um, and yes, from a woman's perspective, I think it's really important, not only because that sets up this hierarchy between men and women that's really inappropriate because obviously women are serving the country, whatever that means, in all sorts of other ways, but also because it propagates a culture of violence and a culture of militarism that can then be, might translate into domestic violence or might translate just into this kind of machismo culture that leads to all sorts of misogynistic tendencies. So it's both, you know, a kind of real world economic valuation question and one of conduct. Mm -hmm. Is that a policy platform that a lot of the leftist parties in Korea are trying to adopt, uh, either like shortening or either like outright abolishing military service? I don't know if any of the parties have made it a very, like a huge thing, but it's certainly something that individuals have spoken out about. And again, that has come up through the courts and that definitely the kind of peace, pacifistic arms of different parties and movements would like to see at least a civil alternative to that, you know, and maybe that would move us to an eventual reduction or elimination. Okay, uh, now I want to talk about the the online wars that have been going on in Korea. I don't know too much about them. I just know the names of a lot of these spaces. I know like there's a bunch of, there's like a men's space called Ilbe and then women have like uh, Womad and, and I think Megalia, we, we talked about that. Just what are these spaces? Like what what's like the general stuff that they say within their spaces? Um, and, you know, just like, what's your take on them? Sure. My disclaimer is that I haven't spent a lot of time, you know, conducting reporting or primary research on these spaces. But what I do know is that the Korean blogosphere slash, you know, whatever web, you know, kind of websites and discussion spaces are much, are very highly developed and very, very intense. And um, they predictably have analogs in all other countries like in the U.S., the kinds of misogyny and violence you see on channels like 4chan or Reddit, 
um, some of the Reddit subchannels that is, um, giving rise to kind of red pill, men's rights activism, incel type violent, you know, culture is also happening in South Korea on, you know, some of the sites that, that you mentioned, like Yerba is this very notorious men's rights site, um, men's rights in quotes. Um, and then the women's analog, although I feel like it's quite unjust to equate them, would be WOMED or Megalia, which is now shut down, which are spaces in which feminists have tried to be online in their, you know, whatever authentic way they choose and to critique cultures of sex- sexism, patriarchy, and misogyny. Um, Megalia, so the being like a Megalia or a WOMED feminist in Korea is like very much an insult and a pejorative, um, whether, you know, out of the mouth of a man or a woman, because that makes you like some sort of very scary radical, um, someone who is against men and hates men. And I don't think that's entirely fair, but that's the way it's been interpreted. Um, for instance, like Megalia employed what in Korea has been called a mirroring strategy in which they tried to take the language of men um, that was violent against women and repurpose it to be to be rude or insulting towards men. So the logo for Megalia was um, the symbol uh, was two fingers making a very small space as if to gesture towards having a tiny penis, um, stuff like that. That's kind of like funny and satirical. And in most spaces, I think in the U.S. would probably be considered sort of fun and funny, but in Korea were deemed like very violent and threatening. And so there's kind of a, there's very much like a disproportionate, I guess, perception of what a man can do online or what a woman can do online, you know, kind of similar to here with Gamergate or the sorts of threats of violence that a lot of feminist bloggers might face, um, but yeah, I think it's just kind of amped up in Korea and concentrated. And then the tolerance level for women's protest and use of language in satirical ways is like very low. Are there spaces for women? Like you, you said, like like if you're like a woman feminist, that's a pejorative. Is there, is there like a maybe better place where you can still go there and say say stuff, talk about this stuff, but it's not automatically seen as as a negative? Uh, kind of like how maybe in, in America, even even in America, you know, some people, some women don't want to identify as feminists, even though they pretty much hold a lot of the same ideals. Um, is, is there a way for them to like sidestep that that kind of like toxic label? It seems to me that fem- Facebook kind of private Facebook groups is a place where a lot of this organizing is taking place. Um, so that's one channel, you know, and then people can have a little bit more control over membership, etc., Um, And then I do actually think that a lot of things are happening through meeting groups and reading and comic books and novels and essays. There's just a ton of energy right now in feminist publishing. So young women who are getting interested in these ideas are finding fellowship and community through those spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so for like, for like, I I think for like last 10 or so minutes, I want to ask... um, because uh, the, I mean, we we are Asian Americans here, and uh, you know, all this is relevant to us, you know, j- just because we are, you know, only you know second generation probably at most. We we still have, you know, ties to our homeland. But do you think, uh, like, do you think Asian Americans have any any kind of like obligation or anything to be interested in in this in these developments? I think they would be wise to take an interest in it. I mean, I don't think 
any of us have an obligation necessarily, but, you know, as citizens of the world and as people whose parents or grandparents or great grandparents came from a particular place, we might have more of an interest. Um, I was recently reading um, Lita Hong Fincher's new book um, on you know, Me Too and feminist uprisings in China. And, you know, I would think that for Chinese immigrants who still have personal connections, that that would be quite good for them to know about, you know, both because the culture of gender relations in these places are what has informed our parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or whoever, you know, to be a certain way they've conditioned like the practices we might've seen in our own homes. And because there are opportunities for international solidarity, if we are interested in supporting those sorts of movements abroad. Um, you know, I think like I've heard from a lot of Asian American women in response to this piece that they see a lot of their own families in the descriptions of Kim Jong in that novel, because, you know, from being harassed at school or from growing up in a household where the mom does all of the work and the dad does nothing and just comes and sits down and eats the best food and the brother is favored, that these are things that are familiar and that seep into immigrant life. Um, so I think it is good for us to just be aware and to express support and then kind of have it reflect back on our lives, like how as men and women here, can we change that and transform those legacies? Yeah. And I do think that like you know, people like me, like, you know, second generation Asian American guys, I do think there is a burden on us to to just learn more about this stuff because I think a lot of us did grow up in these households. We did see these things yeah. and I think a lot of us did resent them and we saw how they could, you know, harm families. And I, th I think I certainly benefited from spending time in Korea uh, a couple of years after college. Yeah. And I, I think there's like an obligation to give back if, if like, there are a lot of things that, that like improve my life by, by going there. And, and, and because of that, you know, you got to give something back. And I think you have to realize there are, you know, improvements that can be made. And Hopefully you can like I, I don't want a bunch of Asian Americans to go in there and act like, you know, we're leaders. Or we know so much better because we're from the West or whatever. But I, I do think at least just getting informed um, is a good start. Uh, and I think for. Yeah, I, I, and I think a lot of young Asian American guys, they, they feel like a bit they feel a bit stifled because there's all these like stereotypes that um, that, are, that are passed on to us uh, based on what our parents uh, did or something. So it's like, yeah, if, if you feel that, then, you know, let, let's. Let's show it by, you know, learning more about this and trying to change things. And I think that, yeah. that's a positive step to, to I think, what can be unfair stereotypes? I think that's true. But I think they're also sometimes not unfair stereotypes in that Asian American men actually do inherit and continue to propagate the violence and misogyny of their fathers. Oh, yeah, and for I sure. And that's why... They have a responsibility to fix that. Yeah, and that's and why so, like, more of us need to, uh, you know, the, the more we learn about this stuff the the more that we we can affect that change oh you know like it's yeah definitely I hope definitely so. flaws yeah um yeah and i think also just you know although it's not going to change the world like when we see these sorts of behaviors in our households in america and to say like hey this is wrong and to actually engage our parents and relatives in these conversations can also be really positive yeah for sure um uh to close it off with some light uh oh actually no um <laughs> uh, I th well, one thing I want to ask you for is, as as like a you know a Korean, well, I'm actually Korean Canadian, but you know I call myself Korean American. I find <laughs> yeah. it difficult North to American. find good books that really um, that are in English that 
really like describe describe like Korean history and everything. I mean, recently when I was in Korea, I I finally just sat down with my my grandmother and just had her give me like an or, a short oral story of what it was like for her growing up. She was born in 1930, so she saw a lot of world mm-hmm. events happen. Um, I remember like going to like you know Kyobo Mungo, you know one of those big bookstores in Seoul, and trying to read one on like Korean economic history. But it was so it was almost like intended for like I don't know like sixth graders. It was just so basic is like oh korea was struggling then they invested a lot of money in the steel industry and mm. poof you know we were rich yeah. it's like come on there's obviously more than that do you, uh, because you know you're you're a journalist you're obviously very informed on these issues do you have any like like, like books that you could recommend for anybody who want to who wants to just read up on you know korean uh political history cultural history um etc Sure. I mean, one easy entry point. I really enjoyed Hangang's book, which is in translation as Human Acts, which is about the Gwangju massacre in the 1980, in 1980, but is kind of more a larger story about Korean democracy. There's a number of very good novels that kind of plug us into modern Korean history, which are good and available in English. So her, um, Han Seogyong is a good starting point. Um, I like the scholarship of Bruce Cummings a lot, who is an American who writes in English about the Koreas um, very well. Um, I think we're in a good moment because there's a lot of scholars and writers who are writing in English and translating into English these texts. Um, okay. If I like, yeah. Oh, Sorry, if, if you can email me those titles, I'll put them in the episode description. So for the listeners yeah, who might have not great. caught those, uh, just check out. Uh, just our, our episode write-up, and you'll find that there. Okay, uh, to end things off on a lighter note, um, you traveled to Korea a lot. You said you're going to go there soon to uh, like another, I guess, a Trump-Kim summit. Um, do you have any like favorite spots you like to go to in Korea when you're there? So I'm usually based in Seoul, but I definitely encourage folks to take at least day trips and go outside and see the countryside. Um, my dad is from Cheonan, and... I quite like it there. It's a mid-sized city and then very close to um, nature. I think also the outskirts of Seoul can be quite interesting, especially on the northeast, um, to see some of the mountains and get a sense of uh, different architectural forms and communities so that it doesn't all have, so that not everything you see is in expensive neighborhoods and in high-rise apartment buildings. Yeah. <laughs> it's still a very diverse place with a lot of stories to be told. Yeah, I, I'm pretty bad with that. I, I spend most of my time in Seoul. <laughs> like, as, as a child, when I... My, my dad's side is from Taejeon, so we would go there often, but it would just oh, yeah. it would just be to visit the grandparents. It's not like we went out to explore totally. the city or anything. Um, I went to, like, Busan for the first time, like, five years ago. Oh, that's really interesting, too. I really like Busan. Yeah, I've never been to Jeju Island. Yeah, so there's a lot of places I haven't been to. Yeah, it's a small country with a lot to see because of the density. And, um, you know, we've been hearing a lot about, well, if it gets connected to North Korea, it'll actually not feel like an island anymore. You know, there is this kind of claustrophobic feeling, but I, hopefully there'll soon be much more to see. Okay, uh, well, uh, we're approaching an hour, so I just wanted to thank you so much for joining us. I mean, it's like, it's an honor to have you as a guest, you know, written oh, for some thank you. It's an very, honor you've written some very important stuff. I, I hope you keep writing about this and, and uh, you know, North Korea and, you know, other stuff. You don't only have to write about Korea, obviously. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Tammy, say, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you so much. Bye. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, my name is Oxford. I was joined by E. Tammy Kim. 
Uh, if you like us, please um, subscribe to us. We're on iTunes, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And please send us any comments or ideas if you have any for articles at editor.plantamag. Gmail, uh, at gmail.com. Uh, this will all be in the episode descriptions. Uh, so until next week, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.